computer systems consume memory, CPU, battery, data, and network bandwidth as inputs. These systems provide value for the end user by delivering information, virtual objects, and physical products as the outputs. Another fundamental resource that is becoming easier to consume as input is money. There are also new outputs, financial constructs that are made possible by cloud computing, machine learning, and cryptocurrencies. This is why there is so much opportunity in fintech. Money has always been a flexible tool for brokerage between humans, but as recently as the early 2000s, the interfaces between money and computers have been clunky and inflexible. Engineers that wanted to build financial systems around money had to work directly with banks and credit card processors. More recently, there has been an explosion in new APIs and completely new financial primitives like cryptocurrencies. In the year 2000, a well-funded team would probably have to struggle to put together even a basic e-commerce company. Today, there's a blue ocean of opportunity that has opened up for entrepreneurs building businesses around lending, insurance, underwriting, banking, and every other microcosm of the financial system. Michael Walsh is a general partner and a co-founder of Green Visor Capital, a company that makes investments in fintech. In today's episode, he describes his perspective on the modern financial technology environment and some hints on what the future holds. We are hiring for Software Engineering Daily. The jobs include writers and researchers and a videographer. And you can find these job postings along with other jobs at softwareengineeringdaily.com slash jobs. Some of these are part-time jobs. Some of them are full-time. And if you are hiring, you can also post on our job board. It's easy and free. Just go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash jobs, and you can see how to post a job. Michael Walsh, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me on. I've enjoyed listening to your podcast for a while now. Yes, we got acquainted because you were listening to some of the episodes around cryptocurrencies, and most of the investments that you do at Green Visor, which is a fintech-based venture capital firm, I think most of your investments are in things that are perhaps more conventional than cryptocurrencies. What's the characteristic of a typical investment that you make as a fintech investor? So we focus on early stage fintech. So we're typically entering at seed or series A. And then really we're looking for companies that are solving substantive problems in financial services and that are using technology to do that. And really that could mean a bunch of different things. It could be an enterprise software company that's helping banks become data first and digitize their offerings. Or it could be a direct-to-consumer company that's offering some innovative insurance or retirement savings product. It could be payments companies. We have a lot of enterprise software companies where there's a significant application within financial services. So, for instance, we have a gov or legal tech company, Fiscal Note, where compliance and regulation is you know critical within financial services, and they're they're helping them streamline their uh, compliance processes. So it's a very broad approach to fintech. And it's also a global approach to fintech. What led to the huge growth in fintech companies? Because there has been this spike, as far as I can tell, in fintech companies maybe since, 
I mean, I feel like it, this was happened at the same time as a lot of other companies that happened just because of AWS, perhaps the the growth and the the you know the decrease in cost of starting any technology company went down because of AWS. But what caused this huge growth in the number of fintech companies? Yeah, we launched our fund in late 2013, and that was right at the cusp of fintech becoming a thing. I think before that, the term wasn't really even used. And we, we always talked about in our marketing materials the, what we called the fintech equation. And the AWS piece you mentioned was definitely a huge part of it because you know building scalable, secure financial services applications historically was unbelievably expensive. You know, in the sales cycle within financial services, if you're on the enterprise side, is longer than most industries. And convincing consumers to use financial service applications historically was also difficult. So it was just prohibitively expensive for a lot of startups to go after it when you also factored in regulatory factors. So within financial services regulation, the way I think about it, it's like a pendulum that swings back and forth over long periods of time towards environments that are f- uh, favorable towards you know b- being bigger. And that, that was happening for a long period of time where, uh, you know, for the first time in the late 90s, early 2000s, investment banks could acquire or partner with commercial banks. Historically, that wasn't possible. So there's a period of kind of deregulation in financial services that favored banks being much bigger and consolidation and acquisition. And, and that made it very hard for startups when you factor in the, the technology issues as well to get to market. But the pendulum started swinging in the other direction with the financial crisis. The term too big to fail became on the mind of every regulator. And they realized that you know having these massive, massive financial institutions and all these different products might not be as good as they had originally thought. It was actually creating systematic risk. So now the pendulum since 2008 has been swinging in the favor of you know companies getting products to market more quickly and startup companies and kind of more negatively for bigger banks where there's a lot of pressure on bigger banks to move out of certain types of lending to take on a lot more regulatory and compliance obligations. So the, the tech in AWS is a big piece. Regulation was a big piece. And then you have consumer behavior and sentiment. Post-financial crisis, consumers started to view banks as something very negative. You know, banks were getting all this bailout money. They had lost a lot of money. So I think historically you viewed banks as some, you know, something you would trust, a trusted financial institution. But with the financial crisis, people tended to view banks as something very negative. And then on top of that, other tech companies had elevated you know, consumer expectations around user experience. People had gotten more comfortable transacting online. So all these factors on the consumer side generated a lot more interest in, in new emerging fintech products. And then on the founder investor side, you're right, historically, prior to 2013, financial services investing in VC was only like 2% of all dollars allocated, even though financials is like 20% of the economy. And for all the reasons we just discussed, it was hard to start companies in financials. And there were no big success cases founders or investors could point to until Square, Lending Club, Stripe. So these were companies that were founded you know, towards the end of the 2000s, you know, 2007, 8, 9. And by 2013, 14, they were getting close to the point where they were now billion-dollar companies. And now that you had all these other factors plus some, you know, some unicorns in the fintech space, both founders and investors started looking at this as a big opportunity. And so I'm hearing a lot of different things there that lead to opportunities in fintech. And one of them that comes to mind is you've got this 
new relationship between consumers and computing, which is through the smartphone or just through improved uh, user interfaces. The, the computers that we interact with now are so much more faster. We have such richer interactions. The interactions are better designed. And these same interactions propagate to the enterprise. So we have this rich, divergent set of applications that we're interacting with. And we find that money is increasingly almost an API or a resource that we can interface with, like memory or CPU. Money becomes something that is fundamental to how we want to interact with our applications or the opportunities that can be created within our applications. So you take any application that developed, you know, 2008 to, to 2015, like Facebook or QuickBooks or Google Docs or Slack. In all of these things, you can find a multitude of opportunities for money. And then beyond that, there's also the unbundling of the banks because people don't really trust the banks and probably the banks are doing far more than they than they should be doing from the point of view of like, what can you specialize in, like just as, as a core competency point of view. And then you've also got opportunities like, which you, you didn't discuss yet, but I know we're going to go into, but things like machine learning is applied to loans. That's simply a, a new greenfield opportunity because the machine learning APIs have gotten a lot better and uh, loan risk assessment is simply a matter of of data and calculation. And there's a ton of opportunities here. So from the point of view of companies that are getting started, these fintech companies, give me a few examples of types of moats that you see fintech companies establishing. The two biggest ones uh, that I've seen revolve around integrations and, and data capture. So financial services, historically, they built their uh, information infrastructure around walled gardens. You know, they were trying to protect uh, consumer data from being hacked, or if they're on the institutional side, information is a differentiator when it comes to investing. And within investment banking, you have to have walled gardens of data where investment banking information shouldn't be passing to the sales trading side because then you have insider trading issues. So the entire banking ecosystem was built around walling off data and you know protecting data and kind of keeping it separate from different parts of the organization and from separate from external parties. So the, the data infrastructure of banks just does not interact well with kind of modern technology companies. So we've seen that with a lot of our startup companies that are trying to sell into banks or trying to access you know, bank customer data, interfacing with bank IT systems is unbelievably painful or selling enterprise software to banks is unbelievably painful. So uh, companies that are able to seamlessly build these integrations and, and interact with these legacy IT systems of banks and kind of interact with their data can have a, a huge competitive advantage. So it takes a long time to get integrated with some of these banks. But then once you do, you have an unbelievable ability to sell them more products, upsell services, and get into other parts of the organization. And we've seen this with you know companies like Plaid, which they built their entire business around integrating with bank data, making it easier for startups to get integrated and to capture bank data. And then you know data is another significant differentiator. You know, one of the companies we're most excited about is a payments and credit-related company, uh, and they've convinced merchants that you know this is a VIP checkout solution. 
And for us to provide this to more of your customers, you need to give us more of your data. So they've actually done a deep integration with the merchant's website or, or app, and they actually see down to the SKU level everything that consumers are doing in that app or on the merchant's website, whether or not they're actually buying that product. Um, so that's proven to be a significant differentiator for them in terms of you know underwriting those customers, accessing those customers, but then in addition, there's a lot of other monetization opportunities around that data, like becoming a loyalty and rewards platform for merchants, becoming a customer acquisition channel for merchants because they're seeing actual you know, purchase intent down to the SKU level and they're able to capture information from their mobile device. So when you have you know, significant data capture advantage, and we're seeing this with companies like Square as well, you know, they've, they've gotten the integrations with all these small businesses which historically have had a hard time integrating with the traditional payments ecosystem. And same thing with Stripe. You know, what they've solved for is how do you integrate startup companies or small businesses with traditional financial services offerings? In doing that, you know, companies like Square now have a significant data advantage where they can offer other products like lending and like Square Cash. So a company can use a baseline compelling product to bring in people in a variety of ways. So a company like Stripe can just bring in developers because they provide a developer-friendly payment API. A company like QuickBooks can bring in any kind of person who's running a business, and then they have a data set on that person who is running a business. I guess in both of these cases, you have uh, data sets of people running businesses. And then once you have that data set, you can lever that data set to deliver more value to the customer and also to to build further products on that data. What are some examples of this idea of kind of roping in, I don't say roping in, but bringing in a set of, of customers? The customer generates data sets on the platform, and then you're able to leverage those data sets to build further products and further opportunities. What examples of this have you seen in fintech? I think one of the best ones is is Credit Karma because the compelling, simple product they built was a big problem for people in the U.S. is if they have a low credit score, they can't get access to credit at all or credit is very expensive. So they built this very simple way for people to figure out you know, what their credit score was without negatively impacting their credit score. And then to understand what are the factors that are going to improve my credit score, what are the things I can be doing to improve my credit score. And then they're capturing all this information with intent as well. So they understand that you know, these people are obviously looking for a loan. They're focused on their credit score and they're trying to improve their credit score. So they're capturing all this ongoing basis on you know, millions of consumers and as lending exploded as a startup ecosystem, they're all trying to acquire customers. So, you know, Credit Karma has probably captured more of the value chain around the lending ecosystem than, than many of the lenders or hundreds of lenders in aggregate because they've become this, you know, lead gen and data channel uh, for many of the other lending platforms. But they did that with this incredibly compelling, simple product, which is, you know, people have a big problem around, you know, knowing what their credit score is, figuring out how to improve their credit score. We have another company in our portfolio that's much earlier on um, that's doing this on the uh, kind of B2B to C side where they've built a labor management software for companies with a lot of hourly workers. So think of restaurants or catering companies or other uh, hospitality industries uh, where 
you know, you have a lot of hourly employees working at multiple locations. Scheduling them can be challenging, both in terms of you know what location, what person, what time. So they've built a platform for the employer, to web-based platform for them to very easily schedule, manage employees, capture information on those employees. And then the employee has a mobile app where they're interfacing with their work calendar. They know where to go, when to go. They do time and attendance through the app. It's leveraging geolocation. But then there's a really interesting financial services product that this company, Nausta, is now rolling out adjacent to this, which they call Nausta Pay. And it's addressing, you know, the problem of payday lending in the U.S. is massive. It's predatory. A lot of people need access to short-term credit, and their only option is payday, payday loans because they don't have good credit. So what Nausta Pay is doing is they have all this information on, you know, uh, the workforce. Uh, people are interacting with their app to manage their schedule, and then they're integrated with payroll uh, and with the, with the employers so they can see what somebody's accrued in wages and then the employees in the app have this feature called Nausta Pay where they can say, hey, I want to get paid now. You know, I don't get paid for 15 days, but I need this money now. So they're effectively selling accrued wages. You know, they're, they're buying the employees' accrued wages from the company. So they're not taking the employee's credit risk. They're not taking consumer credit risk, which could be very risky. They're taking the employer's credit risk, which is super senior in the capital structure, very low risk. So they're effectively arbitraging the credit risk of the consumer for the credit risk of the employer to the benefit of the consumer and of their company, and they're doing it through data and integrations. So that's a, you know, within our portfolio, that's an interesting example of, of what you just talked about. Lending is a huge opportunity, agnostic of if we're talking about the customer or a business or know, perhaps a state. Everybody needs to borrow money at, at some period of time. And there are opportunities for financial technologies to emerge around lending. As an investor, what are the opportunities in technology companies around lending that are exciting to you, and which ones are perhaps less exciting? I'd break lending down into a couple core functions. One is underwriting, and we're seeing innovation there, as you alluded to, around things like machine learning, but also alternative data sets applied to underwriting, non-traditional data sets. Uh, funding is a critical and often underestimated uh, component of lending that many startup companies don't, don't fully understand when they're getting into a lending business. So marketplace lending is a, an example of innovation around funding source. You know, so many years ago, securitization was you know, the innovation around funding. Now, marketplace lending, P2P lending, so sourcing capital from you know, the masses is you know an innovation within lending that you know lending club executed on and then there's process automation you know so historically lending was very paper driven processes from the origination side to the collection side which was both paper and also you know phone calls so we have a company cloud lending solutions which is a cloud based loan automation platform where from origination to underwriting to servicing to collections it's a fully digitized process that has modern APIs that can pull information from different data sources and a purely digital onboarding process. Initially, they were targeting fintech lenders, but now banks are responding to what's happening in the fintech lending ecosystem, and they need modern technology stack and cloud-based lending solutions. But then one of the more interesting ones from my perspective is really acquisition channel, innovation around 
how you're acquiring borrowers. So one of the uh, dirty secrets of a lot of the early fintech lenders like Lending Club, and no fault to them, but the reality was they were generally speaking acquiring most of their borrowers through snail mail or through you know Facebook and Google ads, which is unbelievably competitive and expensive, or through Credit Karma, which is why Credit Karma is a multi-billion dollar company. So what's most interesting to me, because fundamentally I believe underwriting, you can improve it with machine learning and alternative data sets, but it's not gonna be a step function improvement. Banks are actually pretty good at underwriting. And funding, there's no step function improvement in funding sources. You know, P2P was useful, but it's not gonna transform your cost of borrowing. And process automation helps, but where you can really move the needle is around your acquisition channel. And you know, a firm is, is doing this at you know, point of sale. Uh, so I think point of sale and other innovative acquisition strategies, like what you know, our company Noust is doing, they're technically not lending, they're factoring, but it is effectively a lending business. And they have a really innovative uh, acquisition channel where it's effectively negative customer acquisition cost. So where you can have low or negative customer acquisition cost through technology, that's what's the most interesting to me with regard to lending uh, innovation. You defined a term underwriting, or you mentioned a term underwriting. Can you define what underwriting is? It's really credit risk assessment. You know, so it's, it's assessing the likelihood of default of that borrower, and then if they are likely to default, you know, how much money are you going to lose? So banks are pretty good at that, you said. Absolutely. And, and you, have, you, know, you have the benefit of you know, FICO scores, which is actually relatively effective for many types of borrowers. And you know, banks have been using large data sets for underwriting for many, many years. They haven't necessarily been using machine learning, but they, you know, the US is a very robust, mature, large lending ecosystem with a lot of data. And banks have been you know, leveraging that data for a long period of time. And they're pretty good at underwriting for the most part. A lot of the opportunities around alternative lending aren't because banks are bad underwriters. It's because in response to you know, the financial crisis, uh, regulators and investors have put a lot of pressure on banks to exit certain parts of the market. And then on top of that, you know, because they haven't digitized their process, their kind of operating costs to, under, you know, to acquire borrowers and to underwrite loans, like the, you know, actually going through the data is expensive for these banks because they haven't digitized. So, but banks are good at underwriting. They just are choosing not to target certain types of borrowers because they're too small, which is why SMB lending platforms have been able to raise a lot of money, companies like Cabbage. So they, they've chosen not to target a lot of those SMB borrowers because you know, their infrastructure and cost of underwriting those customers is too high relative to the returns they're gonna make. So they just, they just choose not to underwrite those customers. And then subprime became a dirty word post-financial crisis. So subprime being uh, borrowers below a certain FICO score. For a period of time leading up to the financial crisis, banks were all in on acquiring some prime exposure, whether it be consumer credit, unsecured consumer credit, credit card, mortgage. They were all on board with acquiring this type of risk because then they could securitize it, offload it, sell it. But then this this caused many of them huge problems, caused many of them to go out, you know, go to go out of business effectively. And regulators and investors started to say, you know, how much subprime exposure do you have? What is your exposure to subprime consumer credit? So the bank's, you know, response was 
to sell or exit their subprime uh, portfolios. So all of a sudden, and leading up to the crisis, they had acquired many of the big lenders in subprime. Uh, so all of a sudden, the biggest lenders to this part of the market have decided to exit that market. So uh, there was a necessity for alternative lenders and, and fintech lenders to fill the gap. And that's why there was such a big opportunity in lending in 2012, 2013, you know, post-financial crisis. Mm. So it wasn't about, I've heard of these novel companies where, for example, you install a program on your phone and it monitors the applications that you use and how you use them and are you saving contacts, for example? Like if somebody calls you and you save, and, and then after they call you, you save a contact with their first name and their last name, that is actually an, a usually high sign of creditworthiness because it says that you're, you're organized, you keep track of who's communicating with you. And in podcasts that I've heard about this kind of user assessment based on unconventional data sets, I've heard that it's, it's quite high signal. But what I'm also hearing from you is that the FICO scoring is, is quite high signal as well. And I think FICO is mostly based on how often are you asking for a loan of a certain type? Or how often are you trying to get a car loan? How often are you trying to get a mortgage? How often are you late on your credit card payment? Perhaps those signals are, are just as good or they do, you know, the 80% that matters of scoring somebody. How do those traditional data sets like the FICO scoring compare to more novel things like monitoring all your smartphone data? I mean, the most important factor in, in FICO score is your past uh, payment experience. You know, have you paid back on time loans that you've taken out? And that's really the, the most predictive thing with regard to your likelihood of paying loans back in the future and paying them back on time. You know, so if you have a history of paying late and not paying, then there's no reason to believe that's going to change because of some other alternative data that they've captured on your phone. So the FICO score is, is actually very good. The challenge with FICO is that there are certain areas where it doesn't necessarily capture all the important information. And a lot of times this is uh, borrowers who are new to the market. Uh, SoFi has been you know, one of the more successful fintech lenders. They have focused on alternative data sets that actually do add value, which is like, you know, where'd you go to school? You know, uh, how are your grades? Those types of things, you know, are, you hadn't had a credit card before. It's not because you're a bad credit or a bad borrower. It's because you were too young. Uh, but if you're going, you know, to a good school, you know, you, you know, you have good grades, you know, you're probably a relatively safe borrower. So if you start to factor those types of things into the score, in addition to the FICO score as a supplement, then you can start to identify people where maybe the traditional lenders that are focusing only on FICO are mispricing that risk. So I think a lot of this stuff is really on the margin. And the reality is banks have a lower cost of capital. So that on the margin doesn't do enough to help you unless it's a, a segment that the banks really aren't competing on. So a, a lot of the successful fintech lenders, again, have been in areas where the banks just are not as active. Because ultimately, cost of capital is a big factor in lending. So if you can borrow cheaper, then you can lend cheaper, all else equal. And banks have deposit funding, which is a huge competitive advantage. You're putting your money in a bank and you're earning nothing or almost nothing and then they can lend that money out. That's part of their cost of funding, in addition to other sources. Whereas a you know, fintech lender, they're raising startup equity, which is very expensive. They're raising uh, debt from uh, you know, lenders that are you know, willing to take risk 
of a startup company, which are, they're going to charge you a lot more than a bank might be able to borrow at. And then they don't have deposit funding and they can't always access the securitization market. So scale in lending is important. Cost of funding in lending is important. And a lot of the things you're talking about, many of them don't really have much impact on underwriting. Some of them definitely do. And machine learning over time might have a meaningful impact, but a lot of times it's not enough to offset that cost of funding advantage that a bank would have. Uh, so ultimately you gotta, you gotta innovate in other areas or you need to go where the bank isn't. So customer acquisition, you said, is something that is interesting to you in, with regards to lending. So if I have a differentiated way of offering a customer a loan, so for example, QuickBooks, whenever I log in, tells me that I qualify for a loan. And I'm assuming that that is an example of a differentiated customer acquisition channel. But it seems like if I actually wanted a loan, wouldn't I just search out that loan? Why does it matter? Why, why do you care about the customer acquisition side of, of loans? So say you're searching out a loan. There are different lenders that target different profiles of borrower and that have different underwriting techniques. They might be leveraging different alternative data sets. So each one of those lenders is gonna look at you differently. So you don't know necessarily how to get connected to the lender that's gonna understand your profile the best and that wants to lend to somebody with your profile. You know, so if you're new to the credit market, maybe you have a low FICO score because of that, but you went to a good school, you don't necessarily know as a consumer, like who's the right lender for me? So I think that's why, you know, something like what QuickBooks is doing, if done correctly, is interesting. One of the most interesting applications of this is, is our company in India. So India doesn't have FICO. So, you know, unless you're a bank and you have a lot of data on your existing customer, there's really no easy way to underwrite a customer. But what our company, Simple, has done, in India, there's a billion people, but there's only a few million people that have a credit card. And part of that is this FICO issue, a whole bunch of other reasons. But what our company has done is you know, they've convinced merchants that this is a VIP checkout solution for their best customers. They offer an Amazon like one-click checkout, but this is only available to those that are you know, not too risky from a credit perspective. And they tell the merchant, you know, if you want this to be made available to more of your customers, we need to have more data on your customers. So send us your list of your best customers. Every merchant classifies customers in terms of deciles or quartiles. They try to focus more attention on those top customers so they can drive more value through them. So they've convinced merchants to let them integrate their SDK into their app so they can see everything that those consumers are doing. But they've also given them historical data on their customers and told them how they classify customers. So in absence of having FICO score, you know, one good indicator might be, you know, somebody who's a good recurring customer of this firm, uh, of this merchant, they might be a good way to, to test out the credit risk. And because they're doing it through a mobile device, they don't really have any customer acquisition costs because they're leveraging the merchant's customer base. And because they're not leveraging existing payments infrastructure where they need to split the fees with Visa and banks and others, they're leveraging India's modern banking infrastructure that's low cost they can start with a very, very, very small loan, leveraging this entirely different data set than you would have in the US, and start with a $5 loan without any underwriting. They're effectively not really underwriting at the point of origination. They're not saying, hey, you should apply for a loan. 
they're saying you're pre-approved based on data we're getting from the merchant, even though you don't even know who we are. So you know you can buy this five dollar item online with this loan. You got to pay back the full balance. So that's a, to me a really innovative technology-driven acquisition strategy around credit and payments. From the point of view of an investor, what else makes India unique? So uh, with regard to payments, the transition from cash to electronic is a massive opportunity globally. And if you look at the public payments companies like Visa and MasterCard, that's one of the big reasons they've been a straight line up for the last 10, you know, 15 years or since they went public is that you have this underlying secular trend of you know, payments rides the economy, and then it has leverage on that as payments move from cash to electronic. So in the US, uh, much of payments is electronic, and Square captured a, a lot of the kind of residual cash payments by providing an on-ramp for smaller merchants. China has moved very quickly from cash to electronic, and that's why uh, companies like Alipay and Tencent's you know, WeChat had become you know worth tens or hundreds of billions of dollars, just the, just the financial services companies alone. But in India, it's still 90% cash. And even in e-commerce, it's 70% cash. So this will be a you know, trillion dollar digital payments market in just a few years. Uh, and that opportunity is still up for grabs. So that, and that's why we've made this bet in India. In, in a few years, uh, we're hoping our company, and there will be one or two companies like this, it can become the equivalent of a Visa or MasterCard or Amex of India processing hundreds of billions of dollars of payments. China has the most thorough use of electronic consumer payments of any developed country, as far as, as I know. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but describe the payment ecosystem in China as you understand it. Yeah, so we did a trip to China last year, me and my partner. And one of the things that first caught our attention is, you know, we wanted to set up meetings with some VCs, some fintech companies, and other people in China. And you, you didn't really do that through email or through the phone. You did it through WeChat. Every single interaction was through WeChat. And even with, you know, institutional, you know, brokerage firms where they're not comfortable using chat for compliance reasons, in China, you have no no other option. You have to use that. So you know, WeChat is so pervasive in China as a communication platform, as something that's been so broadly adopted, and they have such a you know dominant footprint across other industries that once they develop you know the solution for applying this to payments, it became pervasive almost to the point where you can't pay without WeChat in a lot of locations. So it was pretty remarkable, you know, how easy it was, how much the merchants pushed WeChat as a payment solution, and how quickly it was it, that entire economy, especially in urban areas, moved from you know, from cash to digital. And I, I think it has a lot to do with, you know, I think China tends to pick winners, and they also, you know, pick kind of areas of the economy that they want to push on. So it's clear that you know consumer lending was an area they wanted to push on. And digital payments was an area they wanted to push on. You know, it seems like Alibaba and Tencent have been kind of chosen as, as winners. And for that reason, uh, they had such a dominant footprint in communications. And there was a kind of a regulatory tailwind for this to happen. And I think that's a big part of the reason why it happened so quickly and it's so pervasive. Let's take a hard turn. It's summer 2018. 
What is your current outlook on how cryptocurrencies will affect your investment strategy as a fintech venture capital firm? You know, I'm extremely excited about the developments in the ecosystem, although cautiously so. But the reason I'm excited is, you know, back when we first launched the fund, when it was really more about Bitcoin than crypto, you know, Bitcoin was really about payments. And we have a lot of payments expertise in our team. One of my partners is the former CEO of Visa. One of them was on the Square founding team. So we really understand payments. And when we looked at Bitcoin as applied to payments, it was clear that there was not a lot of legs there, at least in the short or medium term. There was just a whole bunch of reasons why it did not make sense as a payments platform. So I think you know, in the early years of the fund, you know, we weren't doing a lot in what's now crypto. Back then it was just Bitcoin. But now it's become a lot more interesting to me because you know, two things have happened. One, it's clear that crypto is now an asset class. It's not you know, a payment solution, it's really an asset class, an alternative asset class. So that's created tons of really interesting businesses and will continue to create interesting businesses, uh, you know, whether it be wealth management or trading or just investment platforms. So, that, so that's become very, very interesting. And then second is becoming really like a new developer platform. So you had you know, web and mobile, and now you have you know, blockchain as a, as a platform. And, and the financial services ecosystem is only just starting to move to cloud. You know, uh, you know, CRM and Salesforce deployed these cloud solution, you know, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, whatever it is now. But I talked about our company, Cloud Lending Solutions, which is built like a you know, cloud-based lending platform. Banks are just finally starting to deploy things that other industries deployed a long period, you know, a long time ago. So when you think about this as a kind of a developer platform or a new operating platform, then it creates just a whole nother channel of opportunities within the fintech ecosystem, plus the fact that it's, a, it's an entirely new asset class. Now I'm extremely excited. Fintech is interesting enough uh, with all the other things that are happening around mobile payments and alternative lending and you know predictive applications and, and leveraging data within financial services. Now you layer on this new asset class and this new operating platform, and it just creates a whole host of other opportunities that are going to extend this kind of this fintech opportunity into the decades and we connected first in in the midst of this ICO or i guess it was in the fallout of the post ICO run up insanity what was your emotional and um i guess intellectual trajectory along that uh that crazy whatever 6 to 8 month period i guess it was uh, maybe October of last year to, what, March of this year? Some, some, something along those timelines? You know, it's hard not to be pulled in by the FOMO and the hindsight and the enthusiasm. But, you know, you can't really do that as a venture investor. So I try to just step back and say, you know, clearly there's, there's, there's something happening here that we need to be paying a lot of attention to. So really during that time... Uh, you know, rather than worry about the FOMO or all this other stuff, that's really when I started to just dig really deeply into the space. And that's when I got introduced to your podcast and started listening to a lot of the podcasts. And we wrote a lot about this in our investor letter. And the way we positioned it is, you know, I, I come from a hedge fund background and I was a huge fan of, of Warren Buffett. And one of uh, his quotes he uses all the time is, price is what you pay, value is what you get. 
And I've, I've started to look at this uh, ecosystem from that lens. And the price piece basically went insane uh, during you know, that, that 12-month period you know, where all of a sudden it's worth, you know, the whole ecosystem's worth almost a trillion dollars. One day it's worth, you know, 10, you know, billion, tens of billions one, another day. And now it's back to, you know, a couple hundred billion. So you got to kind of look through the price and focus on the value piece. You know, value is what you get. And, then, and there's both future value and current value. And as you dig deeper, you know, the current value is not very significant in terms of what blockchain and cryptocurrency is doing other than, you know, kind of the, the asset, the new asset class piece and things like, you know, uh, the crypto kitties. So th there's some real life applications today, you know, companies like Coinbase capitalizing on the biggest one. But beyond that, like the whole decentralized applications and, and other financial services related applications and payments, it's just, that's just not there. But I, I've become a bigger believer that some point in the future, that value is there. But today, the you know the value is just not there. So from an investment perspective, you know, you're always trying to find these points where you know price and value are intersecting, and, and there's you know substantially more upside in terms of price relative to you know where the value is today and in the future. So that's what I've tried to focus on. What are the big opportunities that could be massive companies that we can get in at a price that it, you know isn't absolutely insane, that isn't factoring everything in right? Actually, the way I like to think about this. And I think given that Bitcoin is viewed as digital gold, it's, a, it's an interesting analogy. There's this thing in, in gold mining stock investment that they call the Lasan curve. And it's the life cycle of the price of a gold exploration mining company. And you have the, the kind of prospecting and exploration phase. You have the development phase and the production phase. And, you know, I think the time we got connected was really the akin to the development and exploration phase. So for these gold mining stocks, you know, they're out there looking anywhere in the world to find, you know, gold thousands of feet under the ground. And when they find something, you know, the stock of these companies would go from like, you know, $1 to $25 and multi-hundred million dollars. And there'd be all this enthusiasm about how big this discovery could be and how transformational it would be and how big a company this is gonna be. And then you get into the development phase and investors realize, oh man, you know, we need to raise a ton of money to get this gold out of the ground. We need to build in all this infrastructure. You know, we need to bring in mining equipment. We need to get regulatory approvals, licenses, and the stock rolls over and trades down, you know, 30, 40, 50, 70, 80, 90% as reality sets in and you realize how much work needs to be done before you can actually get the gold out of the ground. And then it plateaus for a while until you get into the production phase when all the infrastructure is actually in place and the company can actually start getting value out of the ground and monetizing it. So I think, you know, Bitcoin's digital gold, but I think this, you know, the life cycle, the Lausanne curve, the life cycle of a junior mining stock actually applies very well to what's happening in crypto and that we've kind of just gotten through the exploration phase and we're now in the development phase where reality kind of has to set in. Um, and it doesn't mean you know, some of these crypto assets won't be good investments from here long term. It's hard to make any assessment on anyone in particular, but I think generally speaking, some amount of reality has to set in as you go through this development phase where a lot of infrastructure just isn't there for things like decentralized applications and, you know, robust financial services applications. And it, it probably eventually gets there, but reality has to set in and infrastructure has to get built. And there's, you know, that's a period where it's hard to continue to be 
irrationally exuberant around you know what these things are going to be worth. And I think there should be some kind of more skepticism and rationality around valuations. And then eventually, as you get into the development phase, you could you know surpass the price of where things were during that original excitement, but it can take a long period of time. Well, because even the framing of this is similar to the gold stock uh, company exploration to mining, et cetera, framing of it, I think is is very generous to these ICO companies. And you heard some of these ones that I interviewed because really what all they were selling was a story. And it was a story that was spun off of the realities that Bitcoin has promised, which is we're going to decentralize money. And and then the Ethereum the Ethereum continuation of that story. We're going to decentralize AWS. We're going to decentralize Facebook. And these ICO companies just took that story and ran with it to the greatest extrapolation that they possibly could. And they were able to sell that story because it wasn't like, as far as I could tell, it was not easy to disprove. That story. I mean, I was I, I had to look at this space with a magnifying glass to actually understand how much truth is it to what they are saying. Because if you look at what the Ethereum spec provides, it's not like there's anything that is that's like, well, this is not going to work. It's like you look at it and like this is this could work. Like I could see how this could work. And yeah, if you take this to its logical conclusion, like sure, you could decentralize AWS. You could decentralize. Facebook, why not? And and yeah, if you squint, it makes sense that you should have an ICO right now. And yeah, why not? But as you scrutinize it further, it's like actually this is this is pretty crazy. It, it, the the infrastructure is not there. It's it it. I wasn't around. I, I wasn't. I didn't know anything about the internet in 1999. But as far as I understand, it's very much like you know the the web vans of of the day where. Yes, you can build a grocery delivery service, and yes, you can deliver a single banana to somebody's doorstep and give them a good deal on that single banana and take a massive loss and say, yeah, eventually we're going to get the unit economics worked out. But just as Webvan was so far from reality back in the day, these ICO companies were so far from reality, you know, Five months ago. Well, again, I think the the gold mining company analogy is still a good one here because the way a lot of people define a, a gold explorer is is a liar standing above a hole in the ground. You okay. Know? <laughs> so, but I couldn't agree more. I mean, it, and if you look at the one pure play blockchain related investment we've made, we have a couple other tangential ones where there's other parts to their business and a kind of a crypto related play. But you know, we backed this company because you know they weren't doing an ICO, even though they easily could have raised tens or hundreds of millions of dollars, and they weren't selling all the things that you could potentially do in the future. I mean, they were talking about that, but they were really talking about applications that made sense today. And it's a company called uh, Dharma Labs that still they acknowledge all the challenges with the ecosystem today. They're building the protocol layer for debt issuance on blockchain. And the way they describe it is, you know, uh, blockchains eating one asset class at a time, with equity being a first one. So, one of the most obvious applications of of crypto that's has proven to be, you know, market ready is is equity fundraising ICOs. Whether or not these end up being good investments for a lot of people, it's proven to be a successful application of blockchain. And the same applies to you know to debt. It makes even more sense for debt because smart contracts 
within debt securities make a ton of sense. But they're not going out there saying, you know, we're going to be, you know, lending, you know, cash using the blockchain. They're targeting use cases that make sense today where people might want to lend margin finance their crypto investments or they might want to short sale some crypto asset or they might want to do uh, some type of peer-to-peer lending where they're lending actually crypto assets. So, you know, they're very rational about what can they do today with this technology with a view towards if a lot of this infrastructure is built in, you know, five or 10 years, then, you know, we're going to be a major player in, in all debt issuance on blockchain. But today we got to go after the use cases that actually make sense today. All right. I know we got to wrap up. I wanted to ask you one more question. We have done all these shows on different fintech companies and you have a, a lot of experience in, in different areas of finance beyond just fintech. Can you tell me what's your personal investment thesis today? Like what is your personal portfolio balance? You don't have to get like super detailed, but just tell me how you think about investing in today's markets personally, not from the point of the VC firm. Of course. So I used to be a partner at a hedge fund. So, you know, I love digging into stocks. Unfortunately, I don't have a ton of time to do it. But if you look at my public securities portfolio, it's ridiculously concentrated. You know, I have three positions that make up more than 60% of my portfolio. And it's partly because I I don't have the time to dig into companies. And it's partly because it's hard to find very high conviction investments. And when I do, I'd rather just put most of my investments in in that one company. So I think diversification makes sense for most people. But if you can really dig into stocks, I think having a lot of your money into your most highest conviction bets makes a lot of sense. So I have you know, a decent amount of money in public securities, but incredibly concentrated in ideas that I think are incredibly compelling without even doing a lot of work on them. It just seems like they're obvious, obvious investments that I can buy and hold for a long period of time and don't really need to think about it. So that's my public securities portfolio. I do own some amount of crypto, but it's a, you know, it's a small percentage of my portfolio. And, and I own a little bit of Ethereum and a little bit of Bitcoin. I think over time, given that uh, you know I have a hedge fund background, one of the things that really intrigues me is like what happens when there's a, a major, major sell-off. You know, some of these utility tokens and some of these companies that have done ICOs, there is some value there. And when they trade from, you know, two billion market cap to, you know, fifty million market cap or ten million market cap, which is entirely possible given the illiquidity of some of these things, then I, I think eventually I'd love to do some of that personally. And then, you know, I have a lot of exposure to fintech through the fund. You know, I've allocated to one of my friend's VC funds because I have a lot of respect for him. But that's that's my portfolio, broadly speaking. Okay. Well, Michael, it's been great talking to you. It's been great getting to know you. And I'm excited to talk to you in the future about how else things are changing in the world of fintech. Thank you so much for having me on the program. I really enjoyed it. Wow.